following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. Lowe's knows you'll do spring right by saving on what you need to get your garden growing. We do it right, too, with incredible deals during our spring Black Friday sale, like 19-ounce Bonnie vegetable and herb plants, four for $10. And pick up five bags of Scott's mulch in store only for just $10. Whatever's on your list, hurry in and save during our spring Black Friday sale. Do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 417 while supplies last. Not valid in Alaska or Hawaii. Scott's offer valid in store only. See store for details, U.S. only. And I remember talking to one person who was a salesperson in, in California that as the electricity cost um, and the cost of installing solar did become about the same um, and there was an economic incentive, they saw a big difference in terms of how different people installed solar. So if they went to the liberal areas of California, they'd, people would always want to install solar on the front of their houses to make a big impression, to show all their neighbors how green they are. Right. And then sometimes they, they said that when they would do sales in more conservative parts of, of California, people would always say, oh, put the, put the solar panels on the back of the house. We don't want our neighbors <laughs> to know that we've got them. Welcome to the Forbes Under 30 Podcast. I'm Steve Goldblum, your host. On this show, we speak with young entrepreneurs and innovators. Today, we have James Ellsmore on via Skype. He's the director and co-founder of Solar Head of State, an organization that works with governments to install solar photovoltaic systems on high-profile buildings to to draw attention to renewable energy. And he joins us today from Columbia via Skype. James, hello. Good morning. Glad to be here. Tell me, when when did this idea come to you, uh, and when did you get uh, Solar Head of State off the ground? Right. So the idea has existed getting on for 10 years now and actually spun out before I was even involved um, of a campaign in the Bay Area from a couple of the solar companies based there, uh, particularly one called Sungevity. Uh, which was campaigning to ask President Obama to install solar panels on the White House for the, um, I guess, the, the, the publicity value that that would have and right. the attention that that would bring to the industry. It was really important at that time to get the president standing behind and endorsing that technology, particularly given the sometimes controversial nature, unfortunately, in the U.S. Um, that renewable energy can have. So that that started about eight years ago now. Um, I have been working on this project for the last four or five years um, and taking it more international. So the project started in the U.S. with this campaign. While it was going on with the White House, the team was actually approached by President Mohammed Nasheed of the Maldives. Mm. Um, and if you don't know the Maldives, it's a small island nation just zoom, off the southwest in. of India, about two foot above sea level. Um, right. That is very, very interested and very uh, important for them to uh, make the rest of the world aware of the risks that they face uh, due to climate change. And so they were campaigning to become 100% renewable energy at that time. And the president of the Maldives actually beat the White House to become the world's f- the first world leader to install solar on their public buildings and the the White House equivalent executive residence. Um, so now. We are working a lot in island nations due to that. Um, there's there's about 40 different uh, small island states around the world, all of which are in similar situations, very vulnerable to climate change and have very high energy costs. And so we've been working with governments in, in those countries, a lot in the Caribbean, the Pacific Islands, to really um, 
help with that transition to renewables. And one way of doing that, which can be a, quite a low cost way of having a high impact, is to install solar on the public buildings um, that that are a key focus, the parliament, the White House equivalent, whatever makes sense. Right. And so we do that as a campaign to attract publicity. And taking a moment to thank our sponsors, Veridesk, Rocket Mortgage, and ZipRecruiter. Right now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Forbes. You'll hear more about these companies later in the show. When you talk about the Maldives, first, you really do have to zoom in on the map to see the Maldives for anybody who's, who wants to know exactly where that is. Um, and they have done stunts like this before, right? Didn't they have like a cabinet meeting underwater a few years ago? Exactly. That was the most famous stunt. There's actually a film called The Island President, which I think is on Netflix, and I really recommend uh, for anyone interested, that followed Mohammed Nasheed, um, the president, and his campaign work around that. Um, Yes, there was the the underwater cabinet meeting. Um, There were various other publicity stunts like that. Unfortunately, the following year after our installation of solar um, with the with the president, yeah. um, there was a, a coup in the country. And so Mohammed Nasheed was the first and only democratically elected leader there, and things have since uh, deteriorated, mm-hmm. and he's actually exiled from the country, and, and uh, the situation got quite bad. So they have stopped the climate leadership role that they had taken on. Um, but other countries have taken on that mantle. And so there's a lot of small island countries worldwide which realize right. it doesn't matter if they go 100% renewable energy. It's not going to make a difference in the grand scheme of things. But what it does give is a powerful sense of moral leadership mm-hmm. and um, they're leading by example. And because often these islands have such expensive electricity, they're a really good place to test out ideas around renewable energy, which might be less economically competitive on larger mainland areas. Well, the symbolism is so important, right? Because when you talk about President Obama uh, putting panels on the White House, there's probably enough energy to like get half of the Oval Office, right? Yeah, I think there are five kilowatts up there. So maybe if it's a really sunny day, it will just power the Oval Office. But right. it's more the symbolic value on that building. I think there were, there were concerns about security uh, on putting too many. They had to have the roof available. I guess, I mean, in terms of um, stunts done, uh, you know, in, in the United States, I, I guess who else would have done it? Maybe Jimmy Carter? I can't see any other president. So that is very interesting. Jimmy Carter did install – the solar photovoltaic panels weren't really available then. He installed solar water heaters, a really simple technology, just a radiator on the roof that helps heat up water. So Jimmy Carter did do that. And when the Reagan administration came in, supposedly Ronald Reagan actually took uh, those panels off, saying (laughs) that they weren't becoming of a president. Um, and, and so they were removed, which is uh, interesting that Obama then later did install some. I believe some actually on the outer buildings of the White House complex were installed by President Bush, to be fair to him as well. Um, but it, I do think that that dynamic is quite interesting. How common is that in your work for uh, what you're doing with re- renewable energy to be politicized? And how do you avoid that? Oh, I mean, it's very politicized, but I think even more so in the United States than other places. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I'm quite lucky in that the places that I'm working in, I can make a very solid economic argument because often the electricity price is so much higher than the United States that renewable energy just makes economic sense. Mm -hmm. You don't even have to make climate, the climate change argument to justify renewable energy. And that's one thing that we're trying to do in our education is to separate this idea that renewable energy is all about climate change. I mean, that is a really important part of it. But actually, there are lots of energy security issues um, and, and economic issues. And even in the US now, renewable energy is on par with a lot of traditional um, generation techniques. And so that change of mindset that it's not just about reducing carbon emissions, it's, it's, it's about an economic value is, is really important. Uh, but in a lot of countries, uh, that, that, that people are already very aware of that and there's not really a political debate around renewables. Where there can be a political debate is where there's a vested interest or, or a utility that is already making plenty of money and doesn't really want to see the status quo changed. And then it can get quite politicized. So some of the islands we work in, in the Caribbean, um, the utility doesn't like the idea of people installing solar panels on their own homes because that reduces the amount of electricity that they're selling. But they'll be quite happy to endorse utility-scale solar installations that are owned and produced by them. So there it's not about renewables per se. The political debate becomes around distributed generation or utility generation. Well, let's get a little bit into your background, James. I know you're in Colombia now. You lived in the Bay Area. But you're, tell us where you grew up. So I grew up in Shropshire, which is um, a rural county on the Welsh border, about an hour south of Manchester. Uh, I grew up on a farm there and actually moved to the U.S. Where, for, for college. Um, I was fortunate to get a scholarship to study at the University of North Carolina. Um, I'd never been to the U.S. before I started college, and one day I got on a plane and flew to North Carolina, which um, I had to locate on a map. And at the time, my parents had told everyone that I was studying at the University of Northern California. I don't think they even knew where North Carolina was. <laughs> we didn't didn't have much much to do with the U.S. So that was quite a culture shock. Moved to the South and um, absolutely yeah. loved it there. And then afterwards, moved out to the Bay Area because really in the U.S., the Bay Area is one of the key sentence uh, key areas for renewables in the country. And you, you um, had to fulfill your parents' dream of actually going to Northern California, I guess. Exactly. I ended up there, and uh, I think they, they, they said they preferred uh, visiting me out in California than in North Carolina. So, uh. <laughs> Did you have uh, solar? Did you use solar when you were living on the farm? Yes, we have solar installed on all of our barns in, in England. Um, part of that was that uh, the previous, I guess it was a while ago, a few years ago now in England, there were very good renewable incentives um, to install solar panels. Um, and actually, I remember that when we installed them, the price the following year had pretty much halved. So it was at that time when renewable energy, and particularly solar, was dramatically falling in price. You were ahead of your time. And, uh, you know, when you I used to live in the Bay Area, and when I would go running up Bernal Heights, you would see a lot of the, the homes with solar on it. And, and I remember my friend pointing out and saying it wasn't actually doing very much, but it was more of like a billboard PR offensive that it was helping because so many people could see it. Exactly, yeah. And a part of that is, is visibility. I mean, I've seen studies in the U.S. that show the biggest indicator of whether someone installs solar on their house is not income – not political ideology, not ge geography in the U.S. It's whether their next-door neighbor does it first. Right. That is the biggest indicator right. of whether someone installs solar. And that's kind of the idea that we're going with with these high-profile solar installations on government buildings. It's, it's, it's a symbolic effort um, that can really gr grab people's attention because most technologies and, and new technology adoption 
is like that. It's not about whether the technology makes sense. It's often a cultural shift that's required in people's mindsets. Can you talk about some of the um, iconic government buildings that you've covered and are working on now and, and some of the impact that you've had? Sure. So since I've been uh, leading Solar Head of State, uh, these these projects obviously go go slowly. Um, we're working with governments and internationally, so they can take time. Um, but our last installation was on the island of Saint Lucia in the Caribbean, where we worked with the government there to do the first um, installation of solar panels on government buildings, and that was really interesting because the island is really dramatically shifting towards renewables, um, and traditionally has relied on diesel generation, which is just about the most expensive way of generating electricity. Um, so since then, we've had another of other, a number of other projects that we've been uh, signed up for, but they're taking a while to develop. So we have uh, agreements with governments of Tonga and Palau in the South Pacific, and then also um, Belize in the Caribbean. But our next installation will be in June in Jamaica, which is exciting because Jamaica is really a cultural center of the Caribbean that particularly for people outside of the region, they probably know more about um, right. than, than other islands. And so we're working there with the government to install 15 kilowatts of solar on Jamaica House, which is the office of the prime minister. What we found with these um, projects is there's a lot of support there internationally for the governments and up. So the ministers of energy from Caribbean countries will be flying around the world talking about carbon emissions, talking about renewable energy, and there'll be big support for the government but not much of that message gets transmitted down to the grassroots level. So now that's the role that we're trying to help fulfill is um, supporting supporting local organizations where we can. Sorry, I was just going to add on to that as well. So, so in terms of the next year or two, we actually have an agreement with an organization called the Pacific Island Development Forum, which has 12 um, country members in the Pacific Islands, and we'll be working with them to do similar installations in all 12 of their members. And then we're currently negotiating an agreement with the Caribbean community and the organization of um, Eastern Caribbean states, which are two uh, I guess the, the equivalent will be European Union, you call them in, intergovernmental organizations in the Caribbean, which have a total of 15 members. And so hopefully those agreements will really allow us to push that message in the, those island countries. Mm-hmm. And in the future, obviously, we want to expand to, to larger countries as well and try and push that message. But the situation becomes a little bit different when you're working in large countries, and that will much more require uh, partnerships with um, local organizations to lead the effort. And we'll be right back after this quick break. Support for the Forbes Under 30 podcast comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, the mortgage company that decided to ask, why? Why can't clients get approved in minutes rather than weeks? Why can't they make adjustments to the rate and term in real time? And why can't there be client-focused technological mortgage revolution? Quicken Loans answered all these questions and more with Rocket Mortgage. Rocket Mortgage gives you the confidence you need when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. Rocket Mortgage is simple, allowing you to fully understand all the details and be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. Whether you're looking to buy your first home or your tenth, with Rocket Mortgage, you get a transparent online process that gives you the confidence to make an informed decision. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Apply simply. Understand fully. Mortgage confidently. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com slash Forbes. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org number 3030. And there's ZipRecruiter. Hiring? 
Every business needs great people and a better way to find them. Something better than posting your job online and just praying for the right people to see it. ZipRecruiter knew there was a smarter way, so they built a platform that finds the right job candidate for you. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. These invitations have revolutionized how you find your next hire. In fact, 80% of employers who post the job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And ZipRecruiter doesn't stop there. They even spotlight the strongest applications you receive so you never miss a great match. The right candidates are out there. ZipRecruiter is how you find them. Businesses of all sizes trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. Right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Forbes. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Forbes. One more time. ZipRecruiter.com slash Forbes. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Lowe's knows you'll do spring right by saving on everything you need to get your garden growing. We do it right, too, with incredible deals to help you save during our spring Black Friday sale, like Bonnie Vegetable and Herb Plants, four for $10. And for a clean-looking landscape, pick up five bags of Scott's Mulch for just $10. Whatever's on your spring to-do list, hurry in and save during our spring Black Friday sale. Do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 417, not valid on Alaska or Hawaii. Bonnie offer valid on 19-ounce pots. See store for details, U.S. only. Well, you're really wading into political and international affairs because isn't like the, the Caribbean is really solar is a better resource for them, right? Because aren't they reliant on oil from Venezuela? Absolutely. So in the Caribbean, depending on the country, people can pay anywhere from 20, 20 US cents to 60 cents per kilowatt hour. Now, most people in the US will pay between 10 and 12 cents. So in Jamaica, effectively, people are paying four times per unit of energy than Americans will be paying. Bear in mind also that the average income in Jamaica is a quarter of that of the United States. Mm -hmm. So this is a really challenging economic issue for the region because you can't be economically competitive when your electricity costs are so high. Compounded by the security issue that the diesel and or the petroleum imports are heavily dependent on Venezuela, um, there's a real incentive there to right. go renewables. And then obviously the third, the third is this climate change argument that these islands, as we've seen, are really vulnerable to natural disasters, sea level rise and the hurricanes that we saw at the end of last year. Um, and so there's a moral imperative there that they want to show that they are leading by example and uh, be pioneers really in this uh, renewable energy movement. Well, how often are you bumping up against regulations in each market, and is that difficult for your for your organization for your investors? So we so we're we're a five hundred one c three, so we are a non profit organization, so we don't have investors in that sense. Okay. But because we're working with the government, we tend to have um, a, an easier. Uh, easier to get past some of those regulations because we're working directly in partnership with the government and only doing small small projects. Um, the, the problem in the Caribbean is that it can vary so widely from one island to the next. You know, you have very small jurisdictions. Jamaica is 3.5 million, so that's a bit larger, but some of the islands like Antigua are less than 100,000 people. Um, so so the, the, the politics and the the regulations can really vary from one country to another. So I know that um, some of the companies I work with, I also do some private consulting um, alongside the NGO, and I, I work with some companies that are really interested in going down to the region. And everything looks like it should make sense. The economics, the the 
even just the amount of sunlight, it, it looks like it should be the perfect place to invest. But sometimes it can be a little bit challenging because the regula- the regulation and the bureaucracy is so tight and, and so difficult to get through that projects don't necessarily um, move as quickly as they might like. Right. And part of that is simply just because um, the utilities often don't want to allow huge amounts of renewable energy to be installed because the utility still needs to make money and it becomes very complicated in energy economics. But as, as soon as more people start to install solar, they lose customers. And when you're in a small small country, um, every customer you lose can really make a dent into your profit margin. And I think when you're working in these small countries, you see that accelerated. That's what's also happening in the US, mm-hmm. but much more slowly. It, it happens much more quicker in these islands. And so you can kind of make predictors of some of the challenges that larger utilities on mainland areas are going to face in the future. Well, in the Caribbean and for some of those uh, Pacific Island nations, can you t- talk a little bit about the idea of them taking themselves off the grid? And, and what effect that has on utility and what that means. I, I guess one issue is when people are taking themselves off-grid completely. Um, in the past, that hasn't really been too much of an issue um, because the battery costs have been quite high. Mm. And so it, it, it would require a lot of investment to do that. And even with this high cost of electricity, it's still not worth it. In some of the islands with very expensive electricity, you are seeing that happening even more now. And as battery prices... Um, are reducing over the coming years, that is going to see a huge change in the way the industry is working. And I think a lot of the utilities are very worried about what the next few years will hold for them. I mean, we saw that in PV panels, the drop over 10 years of prices. They they became one-tenth of the price uh, over 10 years. Um, And I think we could see something similar in batteries if there was a big breakthrough in technology. So that's really going to revolutionize how people relate to their electricity in the Caribbean and in the U.S. as well. And to give an example, I mean, Jamaica University, right? Is it, Have they taken themselves off the grid? So it's the University of the West Indies, um, which is in Kingston and Jamaica. They've actually built their own grid. Um, so I think there's going to be, I don't know the details of that, mm, but there okay. is still going to be some relation working with the utility. But essentially, they, they decided that there'll be more reliability and they can generate it cheaper if they have their own microgrid on their campus um, where they're generating their own electricity. Um, I think they'll still import some from the grid, but a lot of places are now doing that. And there's a real risk there that as more and more people do that, that the utility could collapse. The problem is that the People that can generally afford to go off-grid are the wealthier people. Mm-hmm. So then the fixed costs are still the same, and that pushes up the prices for the poorest people. So there's a lot of economic issues there which um, are very present in the Caribbean today and in a few years could be just as relevant in the U.S. as well. well what, what is the aha moment, uh, the realization that people have, homeowners have, that they can save money? And can you give practical examples of, of how much money people can save? Well, I think in the U.S., when people originally started adopting solar, it was more of a a prestige symbol than an actual economic decision. Um, The the electricity in the U.S. is so cheap that it is really difficult to um, compete with the grid cost for solar, um, although that is changing now. And I remember talking to one person who was a salesperson in in California that as the electricity cost um, and the cost of installing solar did become about the same. 
um, and there was an economic incentive, they saw a big difference in terms of how different people installed solar. So if they went to the liberal areas of California, people would always want to install solar on the front of their houses to make a big impression, to show all their neighbors how green they are. And then sometimes they they said that when they would do sales in more conservative parts of of California, people would always say, oh, put the the solar panels on the back of the house. We don't want our neighbors (laughs) to know that we've got them, which I always thought was amusing. So obviously there is an economic incentive there and different people want to show that off in different ways. Of course, that decision should not be that on which side of the house you put the solar, the solar should be more due to which will generate the most electricity and not not what your neighbors will think. <laughs> um, in terms of numbers, I wouldn't like to go into too too much specifics on on that because it varies so much even within the U.S. on a state by state and even a municipality level within California from one town to the next. The incentives, the regulation, everything can be so different that it's difficult to kind of make a generalization. But people are definitely seeing savings, um, and and in places like California, where the regulations are are, are more easy, mm-hmm. people can install solar on their roof, and um, that can pay back in less than ten years easily. Um, in parts of the Caribbean, solar can pay back in less than three years. So it's it's about the it's about how much of an investment you want to make, and how all those things work together to to create that payback period. And we'll be right back after this quick break. Traditional static offices are a thing of the past. Today, companies and employees want an active workspace. Veridesk helps people reimagine their office design. Being more active at work, like standing more, sitting less, can help improve your health by boosting energy and productivity. Veridesk Active Workspace Solutions make it easy to encourage more movement in a day. The new ProDesk 60 electric standing desk is the cornerstone of the active office. It's designed with commercial-grade materials, stable at any height, and fully assembled in under five minutes. Plus, all Veritas products are made to last. They're also simple to set up and move or reconfigure as businesses change and grow. Check out Veritas products, including the new ProDesk 60 Electric, risk-free for 30 days with free shipping and free returns. Learn more at veridesk.com slash Forbes. That's V-A-R-I desk.com slash Forbes. Can you talk a little bit about what are some of the barriers or what are some of the other struggles that, that prevent you from bringing solar into the mainstream? Right. I mean – the, uh, financing is a, is a huge barrier, as I mentioned. Technology is pretty much there, so that's not a barrier. I think one of the key things, and particularly the area that we're trying to work on, is an educational and cultural barrier. So what we see in the U.S. and the Caribbean and worldwide is the technology and the economics are ready, but people aren't. So that's our focus is getting information out into schools and for young people because they tend to be more open-minded and if we can persuade kids that they'll probably have more success persuading their parents and if we go straight to trying to persuade adults um, and, and just making sure the information is out there. So for example, one of the countries we work in is Belize. They have a great economic incentive um, that the government will essentially finance your, your solar panel and you just pay your electricity bills as you had before until you've paid, paid that off. Um, but it hasn't been widespread adopted because it always takes a few people, the early adopters, to champion and pioneer this before the majority go. So you need that critical mass to adopt a new technology. In California, we've seen the critical mass, and so it's become widespread and more normalized. In some states, you haven't necessarily seen that. And so what we're really focused on is how we can get information out there to change the public perception so people realize that installing renewable energy, installing solar, is not just a 
it, it, it's not just a, a status symbol as it used to be. It's actually just an economic decision that, that makes sense for your house. Can you tell me a little bit about some of the stigma uh, associated with, with solar and climate change that you bump up against? So I don't tend to do that as much because I'm I'm working outside of the United States. I think you know the United States is different from the rest of the world in terms of renewable energy is being is quite contentious there. Right. Um, actually, in other parts of the world, that that isn't the case. I mean, uh, in my home in in the UK, I'd say solar energy is widely adopted. You do still have some of that controversy controversy, but in general, governments of both sides of the political spectrum have been behind um, renewables to some extent. I think it's interesting now in the U.S. that we're seeing movements like the Green Tea Party, um, which is a group of Republicans that have wanted to support uh, clean energy. And they're not necessarily making arguments on climate change. They're making arguments about energy security, that it's part of the U.S.'s um, prerogative to invest in renewables because they want to generate as much, renew- as much electricity and energy locally as they can and don't want to rely on imports. And so I think that energy security argument is something that makes a lot of sense. You know, some people, the climate change argument doesn't resonate with. They're not that interested in that, um, which I, I do have a problem with, but I still want to work with those people. So making an energy security argument is often a really good way to get through to people that traditionally might not be so interested in climate change issues. You mentioned, uh, James, your 501c3. Where do you get most of your funding or your, your grants from? So we're we're a relatively small organization. The projects that we're doing don't require a lot of investment. And actually, we're able to get uh, donations of most of the equipment and the installation services for the projects that we do from the private sector. Um, We we work with a number of companies. One is Solaria, which is a a panel manufacturer uh, based in Fremont. And we've worked with Enphase Energy in the past, which is an inverter company. And so they've donated their um, equipment. We also have a a partner called Solar Island Energy, which is a, a developer and so they offer those services. And then in terms of a more operational costs, we've relied on donations from various philanthropic individuals and a few um, grants from different foundations. But we're a relatively small organization, and we can do quite a lot with a, with a small budget. As I mentioned before, I'm not doing this full-time, so I don't draw a full income from Solar Head Estate. I do other um, uh, consulting projects at the same time, which uh, is, my, is my main income. And, and how big is the team? Where, and where is the team based so we are based all over the all over the world we have a board which is made up of americans australians uh british south africans people in the caribbean people in the pacific uh, and we have volunteers um that are working worldwide so we the team we i don't have an exact number because it Mm. depends on how you count that but we have about between 20 and 30 people in different capacities um working from a variety of countries, which is a really exciting thing to be involved in because we don't have a permanent location. As you mentioned, I'm currently in Colombia because all my work is online. I can Skype with people and meet from wherever I am. So we kind of take in the advantages of working with people with a wide variety of backgrounds and a wide variety of countries. Um, That can present challenges as well because sometimes it's much easier to get things done if you're all in the same room or all together in a place. But we try and um, get people together um, in calls as much as we can um, to, to, to share information. Right. Well, as you look with an eye on the future, where would you like to take? Uh, where would you like to take the organization? What would you like to be doing that you aren't doing now? 
So we're currently working on a program of expanding the organization and actually rebranding it. So um, in the coming months, we're registering a new organization, which will be called the Institute for Sustainability Leadership. And the idea is that Solar Head of State will just be one program of this new institute, which is really focused on that idea of leadership um, in sustainability practices as a way to encourage wider adoption. We need key people and key communities to embrace sustainability practices um, to get that critical mass to make this more mainstream. So the idea behind that is we're expanding the definition of leadership. We want to work with different communities, youth, women, all different stakeholders, um, the corporate sector as well. Um, And also one of my key interests now is supporting um, in the Caribbean region, supporting young entrepreneurs. So there's a lot of uh, the Caribbean in general is quite educated. There's a there's a highly educated population, but they don't necessarily have the resources available that are available to entrepreneurs in the U.S. Giving gi- I think giving that support is something that will really change things because too often the way that NGOs and the aid sector has worked has just been flying in people from the U.S. or Europe to tell everyone what to do. But there are plenty of locally educated people that know exactly what they want to do and don't necessarily always have the resources. And so using our status as a U.S. nonprofit. We hope to help channel some of those resources into developing uh, the renewables and sustainability sectors in these regions. James, tell me, what, what is your take, uh, to bring things back to the states, on, on the president's proposed tariff, and, and how do you expect it will impact your mission? So most people that I know in the solar industry are very against this tariff. Um, there are a few companies that manufacture panels, solar panels in the United States, And they have really lobbied for this. But the vast majority of panels that have been used in the United States um, have been imported from Asia. And I think the way, if you look at the way the industry is structured, currently there are very few jobs in manufacturing of panels, but hundreds of thousands of jobs in the installation sector. And that is really where those jobs are going to come from. So I actually think that this tariff in a U.S. context is quite short-sighted because um, any jobs that are gained in manufacturing, which I think will be minimal, um, will will be lost in in the installation sector as the prices are pushed up. So it'll be interesting to see what happens there, but I, I don't think it's the right move for, for the United States, and I think it will overall damage the solar industry. All right. Well, James, uh, James, the co-founder of Solar, head of state, we really appreciate you talking to us. You were uh, from Medellin. Thank you very much. Great to be on here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That's it for this episode of Forbes Under 30. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to reach out to us with a comment or question, please do so at under30, that's the number 30, at podcastone.com. Lowe's knows you'll do spring right by saving on what you need to get your garden growing. We do it right, too, with incredible deals during our spring Black Friday sale, like 19-ounce Bonnie vegetable and herb plants, four for $10. And pick up five bags of Scott's Mulch in store only for just $10. Whatever's on your list, hurry in and save during our spring Black Friday sale. Do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 417 while supplies last. Not valid in Alaska or Hawaii. Scott's offer valid in store only. See store for details, U.S. only. At the border, I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying. 
And the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue.